The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. So a lot of things happening at TBC. Thanks for your patience during construction phase. If you look through the windows and you walk down that hallway, we've got a fake corridor up there or a temporary corridor, not fake. It's very real, actually. And uh, we're, we're, we, uh, we'll be like this for several months. So uh, we, we know it's an inconvenience, but uh, eventually it'll all be done. And uh, to God's glory, hopefully to continue to impact our communities in Central Texas for the Savior. That's what we want to be about. So uh, last year we did a series in Galatians and uh, the commentary that I was depending on as much as any of the others was one written by Dr. Doug Moo. And uh, then I started looking online and uh, I realized I own several commentaries by Dr. Doug Moo. And uh, every year we try and bring in a scholar to challenge our leadership. And uh, so I just sent an email to Dr. Moo and said, any chance we get you to Texas? And uh, he said, if you feed me right, we'll come. And so... We have been feeding him right, hopefully. And uh, so he is a professor at Wheaton College Wheaton uh, in Chicago, Illinois, Wheaton, actually. Prior to that was at uh, uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, TEDS, in the Chicago area. And uh, he's been teaching for many years, a New Testament scholar. If you Google up his name, look at images, you'll see all the books he's written. And so we're privileged to have uh, he and his wife, Jenny, with us down here in the front row with us. So uh, would you give a warm TVC welcome to Doug and Jenny Moo? While he's coming up, if you have your Bibles or your devices, we're going to be in Romans chapter 8 with him. And so Romans 8, if you open your Bible. Uh, Dr. Moo is six foot seven. I told him I've got the weight to be six foot seven, but uh, I just haven't grown into my weight yet, Doug. So one day I'm waiting for that to happen. Uh, thank you for uh, the great weekend that uh, you've had us here for. Uh, Gary and other people on the staff and uh, many other people in church who have made our stay a really fun one. Yeah, I am six foot seven. They never make these things quite high enough. Um, always I have this problem. So at least I can see my notes from here. I want to begin on a personal note. Some people have already asked me about my name because you've probably guessed by now that I am not Asian. The name is a creation out of nothing. My great-grandfather came from Norway, emigrated into the U.S. Uh, back at the time when a lot of Scandinavian folks were emigrating into the U.S. Midwest, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Illinois, Michigan. And as he was being processed by the immigration officials, uh, they warned him, you know, there are a lot of people who are coming into the Midwest with the same name. Now, my great-grandfather had the nice, ordinary name Erickson. But this immigration official pressured him to change it, so to the lasting regret of all his descendants, <laughs> on the spot he chose the name of the village he came from in Norway. Little village right near Oslo, spelled M-O. And with his Norwegian accent, he pronounced it Moo, and the immigration official phonetically wrote it down, M-O-O. A lot of you will remember the Johnny Cash song, A Boy Named Sue. I've been a boy named Moo all my life. 
The problem a lot of us face trying to sleep well is nightmares. Each of us probably has our own private recurring nightmare. I suppose because of who I am and what I do, my recurring nightmare takes place in exactly this scenario. Someone calls me up to speak. I can't find my notes. Searching everywhere. Where did my notes go? Looking at all my pockets, the floor. Uh, Where did they go? Did I forget a briefcase? I can't find my notes. How am I going to speak without my notes? And here I am standing up in front of people, you know, fumbling away. Oh, finally find my notes. Where's my Bible? I don't have my Bible. Searching for a Bible. And at some point I can't even remember what passage from the Bible I'm supposed to be speaking from. And I I wake up in this panic uh, generated by the situation of being called up on a stage and not being able to read my lines well, not being able to perform as I'm supposed to, if I may put it that way. I want to suggest this morning that it might be useful for us uh, to think about our Christian lives in terms of acting a role on a stage. Think about the great work that God is doing throughout history as the Bible unfolds it as a drama, a great story that God is is telling, a story that begins in eternity past and will last till the indefinite future when God brings this world to its end. We are called to enter into that drama at a particular stage. Called to come up here and authentically and faithfully act out a particular role. Think of your Christian life in that way. God has called each of us as his children to to have a role to play in what God is doing in this great drama of his salvation story. The only way we're going to figure out how to play our part well is by understanding that story, by knowing the drama, what's come before and what is coming after. Here we are called to be on stage. How can we keep this story moving along authentically? How can we be part of its plot in the way God wants us to be, only by knowing the story in its large terms so that we can know how to play our own part. We're going to talk today about our role, particularly as believers, as the children of God in the created world, something we don't often talk about, partly because the New Testament does not often talk about it itself. But one of the things I hope to demonstrate this morning is that while the New Testament does not say a lot about the created world or what we might call the world of nature, it is a continuing and significant part of this story that we're involved in, the story that God is enacting as he moves history providentially along. 
The text we're focusing on, as you will know by now, I think, is in Romans 8. So I hope that you have Romans 8 uh, available to you in some form. Uh, The passage we're going to focus on is verses 19 to 22, but I want to read a little bit more of the context. So I'm going to read 8, 18 to 25, reading from the NIV. Uh, So if you have slight differences, perhaps you have a different version, no big deal, because there aren't too many significant differences here. Paul writes, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Here again, Paul is talking about creation, what we might call specifically the subhuman creation, or maybe the simple word that we often use, nature, will get at the point. Paul is talking about animals and plants, the earth, the mountains, the forests, all of the created world that, in a sense, stands below humans in the way God has made this earth. And in this context, Paul is talking about the way creation itself is going to join with Christians in experiencing ultimate glory. Glory is his theme throughout this uh, section. Verses uh, 18 to 30 is kind of the block of text here in the larger sense. Note how Paul begins and ends. 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And then down to verse 30, those he predestined, he also called, those he called, he justified, those he justified, he also glorified. Very often our biblical authors will signal their focus on a particular theme by beginning and ending with it. We call those bookends in a sense. Glory begins and glory ends the passage. Paul's overall purpose is to assure us who have been reconciled, justified, adopted into God's family, that our destiny will be glory and join the glory of God in his presence. And his point in the verses we are focusing on then is to say, look how great the glory we're going to have is. Our glory is going to bring glory to the created world itself. And throughout the passage, as I hope you've seen, there is a connection very significantly drawn between what happens to us and what happens to the created world. As humans go, 
so goes creation, is an underlying thread of what Paul is teaching here. Connections are important even though sometimes they can be mysterious. I have tried to think of myself in a typically kind of macho guy sort of way as a person who is handy with tools. I have deluded myself of that for 40 years. Usually, my wife and I have purchased and sold several homes, and the scenario has usually gone like this. Uh, We put our house up for sale, the realtor comes through, makes some nasty comments, we then hire a carpenter to come in and tear out all my home improvement projects. One time in particular, I decided that our living room needed a new electrical outlet. Kind of a part of the room where we didn't have a lamp, we needed one. How hard could this be, I said to myself. Uh, Now, I'm dating myself. I did not go on the internet to a YouTube video. I went to my local library and took out a book, Home Electricity or something of the sort. Electricity for dummies very appropriately entitled in this case. Read a little bit, said, yeah, I can do this. So one Saturday I I got down there and I cut the opening in the wallboard. I I ran some wire down and connected it into a circuit uh, in the basement there, uh, attached the electrical outlet to it, screwed it into the wall, put the plate on top of it and stood back very satisfied with my work, feeling quite good about myself. Um, needed to clean up though. There was some dust and stuff laying around. Plugged our vacuum cleaner into my new socket, turned the vacuum cleaner on, and the upstairs hall light went on. (laughs) Not a sound from the vacuum cleaner, but there that light was on. That's interesting. Turned the vacuum cleaner off, off the light went. Did that several more times. Unplugged the vacuum cleaner, unscrewed the plate from the wall, brought the socket out, took the wires off, capped them, stuck them back in the wall, and put a plate over the wall. Doug is done with electricity. A friend of ours who is a professional electrician explained how that could happen. But for me, it was a connection, but a mysterious one. A connection. A connection that God has, it seems, built into the universe, into the world he has made between humans and the created world. And that goes right back to the beginning. So in sort of sketching our our sort of drama of creation this morning, we need to move back to a step before our text begins talking about things. A step that obviously Paul is assuming here in what he says. And of course, that first act in the drama is the act of God's creation. Genesis 1 and 2. We all know the text here, how God brought the entire world, the universe into being by his own word, pronouncing all of it good. And then, interestingly, 
giving humans a particular role in that created world. The connection we've talked about is established here at the beginning. Well-known verse, Genesis 1:26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Now, if some of you are, have looked up the verse in your Bible, you may have a slightly different wording. I think the NIV does have the Hebrew correct here when it says, let us make mankind in our image so that they may rule. In other words, part of being in the image of God is this this assignment, as it were, to rule over the universe that God has freshly created. Humans appointed, we might say, as stewards of the world that God has just brought into being. And at this point in time, of course, the, the vision here is for humans to be wise and benevolent rulers or stewards of the freshly created earth. Governing it, assessing it, using it in ways that will bring glory to God and be best for the created world itself. Before we move on in the story, there might be one point of application to draw from this first act of the drama. God created a good world, a good creation. And while, of course, as we know the story, sin entered the picture and messed some things up, nevertheless, the world God has made for us to live in is still his good world. It's a world that in its intricacy and its beauty should be attractive and interesting to us. It's a world that's, that ultimately is to bring glory to God as we look at it and the way it functions and the beauty all around us. And let me suggest that one of the problems that I think we have in our own technologically oriented era is that we have tended to sever the connection between ourselves and nature, the created world. If you're here in Texas, you, you live in an air-conditioned home. In the morning, you get in your air-conditioned car to work in your air-conditioned office. You then get in your air-conditioned car to head home again, sitting in your air-conditioned house watching TV. Go to bed, repeat. My part of the world, half of the year, you just substitute heat for air conditioning. What's the same thing. Um, we, we have all of these wonderful, and I'm not saying anything negative about them. They are wonderful things. I don't like heat. I prefer air, air conditioning. Uh, when it's snowing and there's a blizzard outside in Chicago, I like the heat we have on. So I'm not saying anything against these things. But they do have a tendency to keep us at a distance from the created world, making it, I think, important for us to find ways to engage with the created world in, in various ways. My wife and I are photographers. We love to drive back roads and to hike and to take photographs of the beauty of the natural world. But we have a difference. 
I must say. And some of you who are married will know you have your, your sort of traditional and predictable flashpoints. You know by now what those are. Well, for Jenny and me, a flashpoint is the way we enjoy the natural. We both enjoy it, but I like to revel in all that's going on, whatever the weather might be. I think of a time when we were photographing Acadia National Park on the main coast. Um, and the weather was wonderful. It was foggy. It was windy. It was raining. The waves were spectacular. The rain was going horizontally. And I parked our car and jumped out and said, isn't this great? I'm enjoying what God has given us in the rain and the wind and the weather. And my wife is sitting in the heated car, shaking her head at me. Different ways of doing it, but we should all find ways of connecting with the natural world because it's the world God has given us to enjoy. We come to the second act in the story of creation, and this second act is one Paul does explicitly talk about in the text before us. Verse 20, the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. And then again, verse 21, he talks about the creation now being in bondage to decay. The one who submits creation to this frustration must be God. As we think about the Genesis 3 account, it is God who is the one who subjects the world. But of course, God subjects the world to frustration because of the original human sin of Adam. And the connection then again is pretty clearly made here, I think. Humans fell into sin because the original parents, Adam and Eve, fell into sin, turned away from God. God pronounces a curse on the ground itself. Genesis 3, 17 and following. Cursed is the ground because of you, God says. So because of the original human sin, the connection again in this case means our disaster becomes the disaster of all creation. However, there's something else going on here that I don't think we should miss. It's not as obvious at first sight but it's pretty clear to me that Paul is not only talking about the Genesis 3 experience, the original human sin, he's also talking about passages like Isaiah 24. Let me read verses four to six from Isaiah 24. The earth dries up and withers, the world languishes and withers, the heavens languish with the earth. The earth is defiled by its people, They have disobeyed the laws, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse consumes the earth. Here, the continuing sin of humans is responsible for the curse that is consuming the earth. In other words, I think Paul is alluding here to the way humans, because of our fall into sin, now exercise a 
ignorant and selfish rule of the created world, rather than the wise and benevolent rule God intended for us, because of sin, we now tend, not always to be sure, but we tend to exercise a rule that is ignorant and selfish. We are becoming more aware, I think, in our era than ever before of the significance and the impact of that ignorant and selfish rule. The evidence is all around us and there is a long list of things that we could talk about, but let me just mention two briefly. Between the time I was a student in university in 1970 and today, the animal population has declined precipitously. There are today 50% fewer animals, birds, and fish in the world than there were when I was in college. 50% less. And of course, we all know that species come and go over time, animals die off and thrive. Of course, that's natural, it's happened through the millennia, no big deal. But clearly, this significant rate of decline, an unprecedented rate of decline, is because we humans have selfishly simply done things for our own sake rather than thinking about its impact upon the world of creation. Another huge matter in our day, of course, another evidence uh, of this uh, problem is climate change. Climate has always changed, of course, over time never has it changed as rapidly as it has in the last 50 years. And it's clear now that humans are largely to blame for the change in climate. No big deal, we say. And yes, for many of us, it probably isn't a big deal. Our technology and our relative wealth will insulate us from the problems. But think of the 17 million people in Bangladesh living at very low elevations who are likely to have their homes and agricultural fields and places of business underwater in 30 or 40 years if temperatures continue to rise as they have it, closer to home. Uh, Miami has seen a rise in sea level of 10 inches in the last decades, Houston eight inches, with consequences we are all very well aware of. So the point here is simply to, to recognize that the second act of the drama, the, the way in which creation has been subjected to frustration is continuing and is having consequences that are connected to humans. Paul's focus, however, in this passage is the fourth act, how our glory is going to bring glory to creation also. Again, the connection you see. Paul makes this very clear, doesn't he? He says that the uh, creation has this hope of being liberated from its bondage to decay, brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. That's why, verse 19, the creation is waiting in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Only when God glorifies us will creation be glorified. Here Paul makes clear that there is a future for this 
present world of creation. That God is going to liberate it, set it free, bring it into the freedom and glory of God's children. I know a lot of us have probably been brought up with the idea that the Bible teaches, to put it bluntly and simply, it's all going to burn. That this world is simply going to be burned up in the end. It's going to be sort of tossed aside and to be replaced by something else. And one can understand how 2 Peter 3, the key New Testament passage that might talk this way, how 2 Peter 3 could be read this way. But here's where we need to stand back a bit and bring different perspectives of our scripture together. I don't see how one can read Romans 8, the verses we're looking at here, without concluding that there is indeed a future for this created world. It's going to be set free. It's waiting in eager expectation to share our glory. That's not destruction. So 2 Peter 3 probably then is talking more about radical transformation. And the key maybe to reading 2 Peter 3 is to realize the analogy he uses is the analogy of the flood of Noah. Noah's flood did not annihilate the earth, did not destroy the created world. It cleansed it radically, but it did not destroy it. So I think Peter is saying, in the end, there will be a radical transformation of this current created world becoming the new heavens and the new earth. According to John in the Revelation, God is not in the process of making new things. He's in the process of making everything new. Again, speaking of transformation rather than destruction. If you've been paying attention, you will perhaps have been wondering about an omission in what I've been saying. I went from the second act of the drama to the fourth act. How many of you caught that? Yeah, I'll bet you did. That's okay. I'll I'll believe you for now. Um, I skipped the third act, didn't I? And Paul doesn't really say a lot about the third act here, but he does, I think, hint at it in verses 22 and 23. The whole creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth. And we also, verse 23, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship. You see, verse 19, creation waiting an eager expectation. 23, we also waiting eagerly. And in the midst of the waiting, we and creation groan. Groan has the notion here of what we might call expectant waiting. And of course, the image Paul uses here gives us a good sense of what he intends. Groaning as in the pains of childbirth. Um, So the analogy here is the woman suffering pain and labor. Now, personally, I think that women tend to exaggerate the (laughs) difficulties there. But but nevertheless, there is some pain, obviously. Um, And 
I remember the groans of my dear wife uh, on those occasions. Um, groaning, in this case, is looking to an expected hopeful outcome. Uh, and that's the image that we have here of we as Christians groaning, looking ahead to what's to come, knowing God has intended us for glory, that our suffering has a positive end in sight. We know where it's going ultimately. So also creation. Obviously, it is God who's accomplishing this for us and for creation. And here's where, as we Christians try to find a voice to speak into the environmental issues of our day. And obviously one of the things I'm emphasizing here is that we as Christians need to find a biblically authentic voice to speak into these environmentally, environmental issues because we have a standing in the Bible and what it teaches to intelligently and rightly and in a balanced way address these things. And one of the points of balance we need that is to say, no matter how many schemes we humans may come up with, we're not going to bring in a green utopia. Scripture is clear about that. It's God who's going to transform the world. It's God who's going to bring it into glory. But what we should take away from that then is not a sense of, well, we don't have to have anything to do with it then. Rather, Scripture again and again makes clear that our role as actors in the third act of the drama of creation, our role is to be seeking to energetically accomplish as much as we can as we look at what God is intending to do. Only God can save human beings, but we evangelize. Uh, only God will someday uh, redeem my body, but I watch what I eat and I exercise and I follow medical advice, even though I know it's God ultimately who's going to transform my body. So as we think about the created world, yes, it's God who is going to transform it and bring it to glory, but I firmly think on the basis of this text and many others that God is calling us as his sons and daughters authentically living out the life he wants us to live now, he calls on us to be involved in, in caring for his creation. To institute the wise and benevolent rule that God first gave to humans back in the garden. That we now have the ability and possibility to, to do because we are joined to Christ, the image of God. And ourselves are being transformed into his image. Do not misunderstand me. The heart of the mission that we are given, the heart of the role that we are to play as actors on the stage of the drama of salvation is to evangelize and to disciple. We must never allow us to be deflected from that primary mission God has given us in this era of time. But as I noticed on some of the slides shown earlier, this is a church also engaged in care for the poor and the needy, uh, a church that wants to have an impact positively on the city in which it is placed, appropriately and rightly so. And my point is simply that I think we need to add the care of creation 
to the list of things that we as Christians are called to be involved in. For us to think about this matter when we are making decisions. Uh, To think about what effect might this decision uh, that I'm in the course of making have on the created world. Will it benefit it or harm it? That has to be factored into some of the things that we think about. Ultimately, we can summarize what we're saying by looking at the two great commandments that God has given us. Jesus, when asked what the greatest commandment in the law was, you remember the story, I'm sure, says, first, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your power. Loving God means to do what he is doing, to follow in his footsteps, to care for the created world as he does. And Jesus reminds us a second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. I'm called to love my neighbors, the Bangladeshis, who are being, whose lives and livelihood are being threatened by the rising seas created by climate change. And we could obviously extend that many, many times. God has this incredible story that he has set into motion. He has given us the unbelievably great opportunity to be part of it. We should be so humble, the fact that he is calling us up on the stage to have a role in this. We need to think and reflect carefully about that role, bringing into our thinking the whole larger matter of creation and nature that I'm afraid sometimes we have too often neglected. Let's pray. We do thank you, Father, that you have called us to be sons and daughters adopted into your family, uh, that you have given us not only the privileges, but also the responsibility of your children to live faithfully and authentically in all the ways you are calling us to do that. So help us, we pray, uh, to think well and widely about all the ways in which we can serve you well now. And we thank you for the world you've given us to live in, for your purposes for it. Help us to, to think well about our place in that world and how we can serve it and you in turn effectively. For Christ's sake, amen. Would you guys thank Dr. Mu for joining us this morning and challenging our thoughts? Thank you and Jenny very much for joining us. I hope you heard a theme that you've heard a couple of times before here, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Have you heard that somewhere before? I mean, that, that's what we've talked about, haven't we? And so that, that's exactly what he was on, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And so we go out and live our lives recognizing we have a tremendous privilege in the place that he's given us for now and forevermore. Amen? Have a wonderful week. God bless you. You're dismissed. <laughs>